You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We were like a, a sports talk radio show. We had a produced open every time we came in. I would um, Today I would have cut out a line from the movie Vanilla Sky where Jason Lee says, it's too early for conversation of this ungodly hour. This is the first time we've ever recorded a morning podcast. <laughs> I know, for, and it's especially especially early for you. I'm dying, Sam. Uh, you, you sound sprightly though <laughs> this morning. I gotta say, you know, I got uh, I got my coffee. Having some coffee, it's good. I, I also have coffee. What is, what is your coffee of choice in Denver? Um, I don't know. So I actually uh, I I make coffee from Trader Joe's. I have the I think it's like the I don't know some kind of Honduran morning blend or something is what I is what I made this morning. I make like that was a, definitely a, the Mad Libs of coffee. Right there. <laughs> I make it like in a French press, which makes me feel so pretentious, but it's really just easier than like anything else. Like you just, oh, you push the thing down and the coffee's ready. It's, um, but it makes me feel every time I'm like, oh, my French press coffee in the morning, I feel so arrogant. It's very weird. <laughs> well, that, I mean, isn't that what you're aiming for though? You know what you're getting. Yeah, that's into. true. You, no, that's you want to start your day with a, with a slice of arrogance. With a slice of arrogance. <laughs> a delicious arrogance to get the day going. Um, yeah, we are recording a podcast in the morning it is Wednesday, June 7th, and hi, everyone. Welcome into the latest edition of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. I am Tyler Maughan. Sam Dykstra is in New York City, and uh, we're going to talk some minor league baseball today, as we are want to do on this show, episode number 113 of the Show Before the Show. Cal Quantrill of the San Diego Padres organization will be joining the show coming up in just a little bit. It is uh, very nearly draft time uh, in Major League Baseball, and... Last year, this time last year, Cal Quantrill, the Stanford product, was getting set to go for uh, his draft selection, which came with the eighth overall pick in the 2016 draft. So we'll hear about the draft process from a guy who just went through it in the first round last year. And we're going to talk about the draft some today. But, uh, Sam, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've just been sitting here trying to figure out what the name of our morning show would be. Uh, man, that's a good one. That ooh. It would be like Maybe, is that- the show before lunch. <laughs> the show before uh, your 10 a.m. meeting no it would have to be cup of coffee wouldn't it yeah yeah no that would be yeah how is mlb.com or mlb network not used that for something yet if they well, had like a we morning, just trademarked we just, it. yeah we did sorry it's ours now you can't have it yeah all this thing you hear in the background this is me <laughs> trademarking it as we... cup of coffee that is perfect man nicely done sam we will accept submissions though if people have like wacky names yeah. that they want to of what you would um, what you would like, yeah. I at one time I had the idea, I pitched the idea to uh, to a couple of our bosses that I think uh, a morning, um, just like a quick. Basically, I came up with the idea for the Up First podcast from NPR before they did it, but it would have been an milb.com related one where we like talked about what some of the stories were from last night, yada yada. But we want people to go to the site and read the stories. But that would have been had we done that, that would have been the perfect name for it. Maybe it'll happen someday. Maybe it'll happen. You never know. Um, Although the way you you made that sound, you made it sound like my dad with eBay. My dad has always claimed that he wanted to come up with like the, an internet tag sale. You could sell things on the internet. This is my idea. Yeah, yeah. he said Dads. he came up with that in the mid '90s, which I believe him. Like my dad's a very entrepreneurial <laughs> person, but still, like that's, he's clung to that for as long as he can. That's a dubious one. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's a big one. That's a big one to have missed out on. That is true. 
You wouldn't have to be doing the minor league baseball podcast. I mean, you'd be jetting, I was going to say, you'd be jetting around the world on your private eBay jet. Well, I was going to say, there's a reason why I'm sitting in a chair right now, <laughs> not on my throne of money. So, <laughs> um, so we're uh, we are going to talk about some minor league baseball and uh, some guys who are uh, eyeing major league baseball. We'll uh, we'll get started with three strikes here in a minute, but before we do, thanks for tuning into the show. Before the show, you can find us at milb.com/podcast. If you found us there, we appreciate it. You can check out all of our past episodes there, and you can get links to the iTunes and Stitcher feeds and our RSS feed and all that kind of stuff as well. Give us a rating and a review and a subscription. We always love those. Plus, it's always fun for us to read. The ratings and the reviews. Sometimes we just get like random questions in the ratings and reviews um, rather than people like emailing or tweeting them to us. And that's fine. We can answer your questions from reviews. That's cool. Uh, but if you do want to get in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com. Sam is on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykes or MILB. And I am at Tyler Mon. And uh, that's it. Let's get rolling. Three strikes. Strike one this week. The major league draft is nearly at hand. Coming up June 12th, things will get started in Secaucus, New Jersey for day number one of the MLB draft. The Minnesota Twins will pick first, followed by the Cincinnati Reds, the San Diego Padres, the Tampa Bay Rays, and the Atlanta Braves. Those are the top five picks, and uh, there is a lot of talent in this draft. And this draft provides a lot of fascinating angles in that there are a lot of really good two-way players, um, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Uh, But there are a lot of just very, very exciting talents, guys who... When you look at them, you think, I want to see this dude in the big leagues in very short order. Hunter Green, of course, really comes to mind, uh, who is a two-way prospect out of Notre Dame High School in Sherman Oaks, California, a pitcher at a shortstop. He hits bombs and he throws 102 miles an hour. Uh, he's a ton of fun. There are a lot of really talented guys in this draft. What are you keeping an eye on? You're going to be there, correct? I am going to be there. So what? Yes, what when you there. go um, a week from uh, whatever that was, Tuesday, uh, from Monday, when uh, when you hit it up in Secaucus, what are you keeping an eye on this year? Yeah, so one thing I love about the MLB draft, at least in recent years, is that uh, it's not like I, I, like any of us. I, I follow multiple sports. You know, I follow the NHL, I follow NBA, I follow NFL, and it, it it's always seemed like there's kind of a more of a consensus that and in terms of what the top pick is or who the top pick is going to be. There's, you know, the top talent and everybody kind of falls in line behind that. This draft doesn't really have that in terms of guys you definitely know is going to go 1-1. Um, you know, you know it, that's a great spot for the Twins to be in um, in terms of them just, you know, know they can search for multiple uh, prospects. They can get different looks. They're definitely going to probably take – who they think is the best player when you you're in that position. Um, but yeah, Hunter green, Brendan McKay, Kyle Wright, uh, Royce Lewis, Mackenzie Gore. These are all guys that are kind of being bandied around at one, one. And I'm going to be really clued in to see who they're going to take. I think most mocks now, most mocks that I've read have them taking Vanderbilt right-hander Kyle Wright, who's the number three draft prospects, according to MLB pipeline. A guy who's got a plus fastball, above average grades on his curveball slider and changeup, um, some solid control, uh, you know, college arm coming out of that Vanderbilt line. If you've ever listened to the podcast before, you know we've had multiple Vanderbilt guys on this podcast. That's not just because Tyler or I am a Vanderbilt person. That's just because they provide so much, you know, ready talent. Uh, right kind of fits that mold. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see where Hunter Green is going to get, where he's going to go, uh, what he's going to be taken as. I think it's it's a consensus that he's going to be a pitcher. I mean, when you hear that he's hitting triple digits pretty easily for a high school arm, 
Um, that's fascinating. He's still only 17. He's going to turn 18 on August 6th. Um, it's projectable. Everything about his delivery is really good. Uh, you know, he could be a really good shortstop, which is great. You know, we talk all the time about shortstop being a premium position. And when you can throw 100 miles an hour, you definitely have the arm to stick it short. And he's got the athleticism as well. Um, but you just his arm is so fascinating and it just does so many other things that, you know, right-handed pitchers coming out of high school don't do. Um, I think he has a chance to become the first high school, right? Yeah. First right handed high school pitcher to ever be taken one, one. Um, I haven't heard much, you know, scuttlebutt about the twins going with him. Um, but you know, he's still on their list because of just how talented he is. Uh, he's probably going to go to the reds at two or the Padres at three, uh, and that's fascinating as well, just because the Padres and Green have kind of had this mutual affection for a long time now, which makes sense. The Padres are in rebuilding mode. They're, they'd be willing to take somebody like him who is going to be a bit of a project and it take a couple of years. Um, but he's a California kid, would love to stay in California himself uh, because of the nature of the draft. He doesn't get to kind of choose that. Um, so he, I think privately he's been angling for the Padres. Uh, but if the Reds take him at number two, the difference in the pick value is you know seven point one nine three million dollars versus six point six six eight million dollars. So we're talking about a half a million dollar difference. He's probably not going to cry too hard if the Reds take him at number two, um, add him to that red system. So yeah, I, I think th- those are my main storylines. It's just kind of what is going to happen at number one. Is it going to be Kyle Wright? Are are the Twins going to kind of surprise us like the Phillies did last year with Mickey Moniak? And also where where does Hunter Green fall to if he doesn't go one? Yeah. And uh, another guy I haven't mentioned yet, Brendan McKay sits and in, fits into this category that we are going to talk about in number two, uh, left-handed pitcher out of Louisville, but also a really good power hitting first baseman, um, as well. Uh, you know, it's got a really, really good curveball, solid fastball, good control. He could stick on the mound. He is left-handed, which is, which certainly helps his case. Um, but there's lots in the bat to like as well, you know, do, does it, what is he going to be announced as by whoever takes him? Is he going to be announced as a left-handed pitcher? Is he going to be announced as a first baseman? Um, that announcement will tell us plenty about what teams tend to do with him. And to kind of transition here, us into strike two, is he going to be announced as both? Because that is also a possibility, which is fascinating about the game today. Yeah, and I think is dictated somewhat by the way players are developing at the youth levels. And that is our strike two topic, which is – are two-way players going to become a thing at the professional level in baseball? I think right now, you know, the the most notable example of this at the major league level, even though it hasn't really panned out the way uh, you would have hoped if you wanted to watch him dominate in, in multiple facets, including as a position player and a pitcher, is Christian Bethencourt with the San Diego Padres, who's a, a catcher with a, a fantastic defensive resume. He can hit a little bit. And also this year, the Padres tried him on the mound. Now, he hasn't had a very good season and he's been injured. Um, but that's really not due to the fact that he's a two-way player. It's due to the fact that he got spiked in his first inning when he was covering the plate, and he's just had some things come up that have limited him on the field this year. But two-way players at the high school and college level especially, it's not uncommon at the high school level at all, um, but to do it at the college level and to have so many guys do it effectively at the college level does seem relatively new, at least in terms of the crop of guys that are doing it this year, the the amount of guys that are showing out as 
top level talent, first round type talent who are two way players. And is that going to be a thing? I I personally think it is to to a certain extent. I don't think we're going to see a, a major league team that has, you know, five guys that play two ways. But I do think that we will start seeing more and this is one of the baseball buzzwords of 2017 but more versatility among players you like seeing guys you know even just from the position player side you like seeing the Ben Zobris of the world and what they can do in playing multiple positions it seems like this is the next logical step and a lot of times in situations like this the youth game dictates what translates to the professional level so if guys are able to do things successfully at the lower levels in the amateur side of the game, major league teams nowadays seem to be a lot more amicable to the idea that we'll let you continue doing something that you're successful with until it doesn't work. If you get in a pro ball and you can be a successful pitcher and first baseman, why not let that, let that roll for a little while? If it doesn't work, if say, Brendan McKay ends up with the Cincinnati Reds or he ends up with the Tampa Bay Rays or he ends up with whoever and all of a sudden the bat falls apart because he's struggling on the mound or vice versa or he isn't getting his work in defensively that you want to see him get as a first baseman then you start trying to hone that road just on one side of that split but if it works I think teams we found ourselves in a really cool era in which teams seem to be very open to allowing those things to progress this isn't a bygone era of baseball where okay that's cute that you played two positions in college we're gonna shoehorn you into one thing and one thing only I think this is a wave of the future I I it might be the start of something I'm still and this makes me feel like the old fogey I I, I feel like organizations are less likely to st- to continue this like there are more talents who are multi-tooled now going into this draft than i think i've seen since i i've covered the minors the last couple years um there's more question marks in terms of could they play two positions that's great and i think that's that's the game is certainly trending that way um you know we've talked that about that before with otani in japan um what is what what are major league teams going to try to do with with him Um, we know in japan he's dhing and uh pitching Um, but when you invest so much money and so much time into scouting these guys and so much time in developing these guys. Um, you know, especially with, with Hunter green, um, you know, allowing him to pitch and play shortstop is, is almost impossible because you do need your arm for shortstop. And if you're a pitcher, you don't want to waste your arm. You don't want to use up bullets, um, trying to throw out a guy in the third inning. Um, you know, that's why I think with somebody like McKay, it could be an interesting thing in terms of DHing um, because he's first base. You know, you don't need him there so much. Um, but that would only be the case, you know, if if he does fall uh, to the Rays at four um, or if the, the Twins do take him at one. But I don't think they would take him at one thinking he could play two ways. I don't know. It's it just feels like. It's an interesting question, and I love that we're having the question because it's not something we've done in a while. Um, but I still think teams are just going to, you know, they don't want to risk anything um, for these guys that they take so high and, and risk so much money for. Uh, the one example that I can think of, at least in recent memory, uh, is Casey Kelly. Uh, he was taken the first round back in 2008 by the Red Sox. Uh, the first couple of years, they allowed him to play shortstop. That was kind of part of their agreement was listen we like you as a pitcher we want you to be a pitcher but we will take you as a shortstop try to prove to yourself you try to prove to us that you can be a shortstop 
and then we'll we'll pick up the pitching conversation again later. Um, so in 2008, he was a shortstop in, in the GCL, uh, but by 2009, you know, he hadn't really hit that well. He hadn't done that well at short, and they had decided, and they kind of showed him, see, this is why we liked you as a pitcher, and he kind of went along with it. And now we know Casey Kelly, kind of as a journeyman, he didn't work out with the Red Sox. He got traded eventually, but um, we know him as a pitcher. I think. We could see that possibility with with somebody like Green or McKay. That they say, "Hey, listen, first summer, sure, whatever. We're not going to waste your bullets. We'll let you hit some, and we'll talk about it more in the off season. Um, long term, I I think it's going to be a long time before we see a two way player in the majors. But hey, if we're having the conversation now, that means we've we're closer than we ever have been. Just going to jump in here really quick. Uh, as random as this is, the night that we recorded this episode, so uh, Wednesday evening, we recorded on Wednesday morning. Um, Sam mentioned Casey Kelly right there. Casey Kelly was actually one of our stories on Wednesday night, and I got a chance to ask Casey Kelly about what it was like for him as a two-way player uh, and what he thinks it's like for guys who are coming out of school right now going into the draft as two-way players. Um, so I, I recorded that answer. It's a, a bit of a different setup, uh, what I do for our written stories, so the audio quality is a little bit different from what you might normally hear during one of our phone interviews but here's Casey Kelly on that topic uh, a question that I got to ask him Wednesday night uh, you know to answer the first part of that I think that you know just the experience that I've had um, you know the kids got to go with what they want to do if they want to pitch then they should you know pitch if they want to play a position play a position um, you know for me I think that you know going to the draft I wanted to play shortstop and I got an opportunity to play that and then you know end up uh, being on the mound and, and pitching um but, you know, I'll never look back and be like, oh, man, I wish I would have played shortstop just to see what happened. So, um, you know, I think for them, it's gotta, you got to follow your heart. you got to make sure that uh, that's really what you want to do. Um, and the second part of that, I think that, you know, there's just a lot, of, a lot of good athletes out there. And I think that, you know, at a young age like those guys are, there's, you know, they're playing multiple positions. They're not just pitchers. So they're not just um, shortstops and center fielders. I think that, you know, there's a lot of good athletes out there. They're playing all over the field. They're playing multiple sports, which I think is great. It only helps them out. Casey Kelly, former two-way player in the Boston Red Sox organization, now a pitcher in the Chicago Cubs system, had a terrific outing, pitched a complete game shutout. Actually, the first complete game of his career for AAA Iowa on Wednesday night, and you can check out that story at MILB.com. But a serendipitous interview that night, and uh, now back to uh, strike two. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And I think it's also very valid that, you know, major league organizations are businesses and you don't want to put money into an investment and add risk in a an area of that investment that you're not really counting on banking on. If you're drafting somebody like Hunter Green with the idea that he's going to be a power right-hander on the mound for you, then adding the risk of having him play the infield, having him hit, probably isn't worth it to you. But I do also think that in this era in which there is such an increased emphasis on guys being able to do multiple things, if we're sticking with a 25-man roster and all of a sudden doors start to open up that you can have multiple guys on your roster who can not only fit into your bullpen but can fit onto your bench as well, um, I think front offices are going to be very excited about that possibility. However, it's going to take somebody doing it successfully to prove that it can be done because it's a, that's a – 
pretty big fire hose to drink out of to get into pro ball and be, okay, I'm going to pitch. I'm also going to hit. I'm also going to play in the field, those types of things. So somebody would have to do it. Somebody would have to kind of blow the doors off of that stereotype that it can't be done in order to make major league front offices embrace it. But I do think that we're, we're more right now in a chapter in baseball where front offices would be open to that. Player development would be open to that. So it'll see. And the, the thing about the 2017 draft is there are a lot of guys who have that potential. It'll just, like Sam said, it'll kind of rely on an organization saying, okay, we'll go with this for now. We'll talk about it a little more. If we feel like it's something that can be successful, then we'll go with that. So that's strike two. Strike three this week, Sam. Taking a look back on the 2016 Major League Baseball first-year player draft. Um, it's interesting because as we started this conversation, we're talking about uh, the the start of 2017, how there really is no clear-cut 1-1. And that's how things were last year going into the first round of the 2016 draft when for a long time it was, okay, A.J. Puck is going to be the guy, the left-hander out of Florida. Then it was maybe Corey Ray, the outfielder from Louisville, is going to be the guy. And then Mickey Moniak started to get the conversation rolling for his potential to be a one one really late and it was about a week before the draft I think that it finally seemed like the Phillies had settled in on Mickey Moniak as their top overall draft selection and Moniak did go 1-1 signed for 6.1 million dollars went to the GCL last year came on the show before the show podcast which I'm sure was the highlight of his 2016 and uh now we're seeing the first rounders from last year really assert themselves there have been a lot of really impressive starts to professional careers from those guys Moniak has been good Nick Senzel has been good in the Cincinnati Reds organization Ian Anderson has been really good in the Atlanta Braves system Riley Pint has been terrific for the Colorado Rockies Corey Ray AJ Puck Braxton Garrett Cal Quantrill who we'll talk to on the show today all these guys from last year it seems like are already standing out um what when you look back on 2016 you were in the room on night number one in Secaucus at MLB Network what what do you reflect on now with that draft and how how this class has started to assert itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think even I, you know, there were some whispers maybe about Moniak going one one last year, but even I in the moment was surprised that it happened. I mean, it broke like a couple minutes. It's the draft, this the way things work, but um, it broke a couple minutes beforehand that Moniak was going to go one one to the Phillies, and that just felt like such a surprise, just because he wasn't an established player yet. Um, he had a great senior season. Built his way into that. There was talk about Blake Rutherford, who dropped all the way to the Yankees at number 18. Rutherford was the better prospect entering their senior years. Moniak passed him. Um, so what does that mean about the way we kind of understand both of those guys? But still, uh, I, by taking Moniak one, you know, I think the Phillies knew that they could get him for a little cheaper than some of the other options. And for a Phillies team that was trying to rebuild at the time and still is, um, you know, it's it's not just who you take first. It's who you take second, third, fourth, fifth, making sure you can get aggressive with those signs. Um, so that that's what stood out to me in, in that moment. And then the Reds getting kind of safe by taking Nick Senzel. Um, he's lived up to the billing, um, not quite moved as quickly as I thought he might, but he was just named to the FSL All-Star team. So I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a jump to double-A Pensacola at some point soon, uh, showing really good gap-to-gap power. Uh, Ian Anderson was a little bit of a surprise at number three for the Braves. He was a New York native, upstate New York native, uh, one of those typical high schoolers who scouts don't get to see too much just because there's so much rain, there's so much snow, it's a shorter season. Uh, but the Braves seemed to like what they had in him, and you know the Braves needed it or have taken a lot of arms. They took a lot of arms last year. Um, so to see him kind of highlight that package. Um, looking back on it now, it's kind of interesting. Just I, I know it feels like a lot of these guys have done well, and I think they have done solidly in the first half. I don't know if there's a true big standout. 
for me anyway. Uh, maybe it's Puck, the way he struck out guys at, at Class A Advanced Stockton so far. Um, but even he has had control problems uh, through these first two months, going on three months of the season. So I don't, I don't know if there's anybody who's quite asserted themselves in that way that we would kind of hope for in a first-round pick. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I think somebody put it this way in terms of Moniac. It was at baseball's perspective, so I want to make sure I get the site right. Uh, we think as 1-1 players as, again, going back to other sports, you know, we think as 1-1 players right. as the LeBron Jameses of the world and the Tim Duncans of the world and all this kind of stuff. And these are guys who are meant to dominate their competition. And, and baseball just doesn't work out that way um, all the time because, you know, developmental paths are different. Um, you know, the signing bo- bonus pools are include some math in that so you have to get a little creative with, with who you're going to take it's not necessarily the top talent um though oftentimes that's who they want to take um so it, we can't really hold up moniac to like the standard of ken griffey jr just because they're high school outfielders uh, we have to think of them more as like a high school outfielder who fits his skill set so so many more like austin meadows or clint frazier from a couple of years ago both guys coming out of georgia uh you know, similar skill sets. How did those guys develop? And, and it took those guys a couple of years before they really established themselves and, and put up the stats um, that made them into, you know, the great outfield prospects we believe them to be today. So even if you're not really enthused, if you're a Phillies fan, by Moniac's 270, 320, 400 line so far, and that it's not like, oh, my God, he's, he really is a 1-1 talent. They drafted him for five years from now. They didn't draft him from this year. Um, so even if I'm still caught up on, you know, oh, nobody's jumping out of the gate really fast yet, um, it, it is too early for this. Um, it is kind of int- fascinating just to look back on it, uh, you know, who went where, what that means. Kyle Lewis felt like he fell last year to the Mariners at number 11. That was a surprise. Jason Groom fell to the Red Sox at 12. That was a surprise that both of those guys fell out of the top 10. Um, and both are injured now. And, I know Lewis is just getting it going, uh, looking like he's going to be back soon in the Mariner system, but Groom is still in extended spring training with the Red Sox. Um, there's still so many question marks about this class. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on it going forward, but it is fun to just reflect back and see um, you know, w- what questions have been answered and which questions we still have. I think it is important to note, And we've discussed this before, but yeah, like you said, I mean, you kind of view everything through the prism of what a 1-1 pick is in other drafts and the the most uh, hyped drafts every year are the NFL and NBA drafts because those guys are going to make the impact most quickly um major league baseball and the nhl have a lot more in common than major league baseball has in common with the nba or the nfl in terms of what you can expect from a first round pick or especially you know somebody like a 1-1 pick who comes out of high school um than what you see in the other leagues if you take somebody in the first round in major league baseball especially if they come out of high school you're really not going to see them playing in the upper minors or in the major leagues for four years, probably at the earliest in a lot of these cases, especially for the high school guys. Um, so that is something you really have to keep in mind. It's, it's difficult because when you're a sports fan, you have the first overall pick in the draft and it's like getting a Christmas present that you're really excited for that you can't open for a few years. So it's kind of tough in that regard. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, as Sam noted, there were a handful of guys last year who we thought were going to go maybe possibly 1-1 guys. Weird. Jason Groom for a long time. I mean, you mentioned Blake Rutherford who falls all the way back to 18 to the Yankees. Jason Groom was projected as a potential top overall pick. He fell to number 12 to the Red Sox, and that came like on draft day. So there's a lot of stuff that still sifts out and gets sorted 
sorted through up until the final hours before the draft and leading into the draft. Um, but if you have a team that takes a player in the first round, it's good, it's exciting, it's all that. And get ready to not hear about that guy unless you listen to this podcast for the next few years, pretty much. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I was going to say, yeah, please listen. You'll hear. Yeah, about you'll, hear, it here. you'll hear about it from us. Yeah. Obviously. It's, it's like uh, getting a savings bond for Christmas. Yeah, basically. To, to use your Christmas present. It's a very uh, good point. analogy. It's a very yeah. good way to put it. I remember when I got my first savings bond. And I'm like, oh, great. This is 50 bucks. My dad's like, eh, no, exactly. <laughs> it will be 50 bucks a yeah, long so time you, from now. If your team has a hole at shortstop and you draft a shortstop, you're like, oh, great. This is going to be awesome. No, just uh, give it time. At some point. Yeah. At some point, it could be awesome. Or it could not be. You know, it's a crapshoot. The world is your oyster. <laughs> that's what the major league baseball draft comes down to um it is a very inexact science but that to me is what makes it most fascinating because in the nfl it looks like you just have slam dunk type of guys in the nba it looks like you have sure things sometimes those don't work out um but it's a much different animal to scout for is this guy ready to contribute at the highest level right now than it is in baseball where it's can i see this guy developing and progressing enough to contribute three, four, five years down the road and for a long time beyond that. The scouting is so much more intricate and so much more delicate when it comes to the Major League Draft, the NHL Draft, those types of things. Um, that's not to knock the NBA or the NFL. It's just the, the way the sports have developed is different, um, but it really fascinates me. Major League, if you're a scouting person, if you are a member of a scouting department or you are a scout and you are in charge of, or you factor into this process for major league organization, that's like splitting the atom to me. That is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite things is always just go like 10 years back and look at a draft and just say, how did they miss X over Y? Um, I, I think the, the fun one is always, you know, the Rays took Tim Beckham or Buster Posey. What were they thinking? It's like, well, there was a like, legitimate chance there of Tim Beckham being athletic. And it, now he's a good player. You know, yeah. He's a major league player. He's not Buster Posey. But, right. um, you know, the fact that you got any value out of that pick is sometimes something in and of itself. So, um, yeah, trying to put yourself – when we always keep that caveat with you is that they were looking at the moment trying to project forward. And when right. you're projecting forward, there's always that cone of success. You know, it could go really high. It could go really low. Um so when you're when you're watching next Monday, try to remember that. Um, and that's why I, I, we won't be doing this. I don't think you see it too often in Major League Baseball. But draft grades is always such a clickbaity thing in the NFL and the NBA. You won't see that so much in MLB just because it's so tough to try to say, oh, this is an automatic win. You just won't know until 10 years down the line. Yeah, uh, around here it's always that the uh, the Rockies took Greg Reynolds over Evan Longoria, so it's also Rays related. But it's funny because you could really do that. They always have like that that circular thing every NFL season of like, oh, the parody in the NFL. Every team is beating every other team. Like that happens. You could have one of those for every team in Major League Baseball. Like this weird pick led to this team getting this guy. You could do that, I feel like, all the way around all 30 teams in Major League Baseball um, because it's a very inexact science, but it's fun. It'll kick off on the 12th of June at MLB Network's headquarters in Secaucus, New Jersey. Sam, as I understand it, will be announcing the first overall pick, so it'll be very exciting for all of us. And, um, yeah, have fun. That's, that, that's not true. Oh! Unless I, unless oh, okay. I decide to get crazy and ru wrestle the mic away from <laughs> Rob Manfred, um, in which case this Give will be this, my last Rob. podcast. <laughs>
Um, by the way, uh, this is a good time for us to plug. Go follow Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo from MLB Pipeline. Uh, they've got all kinds of good draft coverage as well, in addition to everything that Sam's putting together and all the stuff we've got on the site. But um, we love those guys, and they've got some really good stuff up at, M- at MLB Pipeline right now um, and uh, and friends of the podcast as well. So go give them a follow for uh, to supplement your knowledge of the 2017 Major League Draft. And with that, we'll talk to one of the stars of the 2016 Major League Baseball first-year player draft, and that is the 22-year-old right-hander from Stanford University and currently with the Lake Elsinore Storm in the Class A Advanced California League. Cal Quantrill joins the show to talk draft, talk his first full pro season, and a whole lot more coming up next. Well, we're joined this week on the uh, Minor League Baseball podcast, the show before the show, by number two prospect uh, in the Padres system, Cal Quantrill. Uh, Cal's calling in from California, currently with Class A Advanced Lake Elsinore. Cal, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. So um, first things first, wanted to take you through the, this first full season. Like I said, you're with Lake Elsinore in the California League. Uh, you have some experience playing in California when you were with Stanford. But uh, what's the, these first, fen- first 10 starts been like? What's this first full season been like so far? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's been some ups and downs so far. Uh, this league can be tough to pitch in. Um, it's, a, you know, the whole lineup just gets better and better every league you go up, right? You know, three-hole guys in low A become four, five, six-hole guys, you know, in high A. And, you know, the teams just keep getting better and better. We've seen a lot of talent, and uh, but I've enjoyed it. I mean, California is a beautiful state, and I came all the way out here to go to school, and I'm, I'm pretty excited to be back. Yeah, and um... – what you mentioned the Cal League, what what it's like pitching in that league. Everybody knows it's a pretty offensive friendly league. Uh, what kind of lessons have you kind of taken away from these first two plus months or so um, that you didn't necessarily necessarily know uh, entering the season? Uh, I mean, if you leave if you leave fastballs up in this league, they can do damage. I mean, every, almost every field in the league, you can hit a home run to all parts of the park. Um, and the, the biggest difference league to league really honestly is just they will make they will execute on more of the mistakes you make um that's what separates the best hitters from guys you know who are just getting drafted down like you know albert Pujols misses a lot less of the bad pitches than you know some guy just getting started so sure. i think that that's probably what i've learned the most is that you know just because you're one two on a guy doesn't mean you can throw that fastball anywhere you like um they're good hitters there's a reason they're there. There's a reason they're in the same level as you are. Uh, you need to execute every pitch of the at-bat. I think you just need to up your intensity a little bit on the mound, you know, compared to anything you've done before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how do you feel like you've changed as a pitcher? This last outing you had, um, you rebounded from giving up three homers against San Jose on May 31st. Last time only gave up the one run on five hits and six innings, no walks, six strikeouts. Um, you know, what do you think you've kind of taken forward in this last outing, and what are you looking to kind of carry that going forward with the Storm? Yeah, I think um, I've become a little more realistic about approaching a baseball game. Like, the goal is to win the baseball game. If there's a guy on third, nobody out, it doesn't mean I'm not going to try and stop him from scoring, but I'm going to do what it takes to put my team in a situation where I go five, six, seven innings and get a chance to win the game. Um, the games that have got out of hand, uh, like the game against San Jose, it's a good team, and, and they hit the ball hard, but I think I was trying to do a little bit too much, you know, getting out of what makes me me and, and when you t- when you kind of are able to take a step back and you know make an adjustment, think about what you did wrong, and, and show up that next game, and and you know I, I showed up and I think I had a, a lot better approach and uh, and executed two strike pitches better, and and you know made the changes that need to be made. 
And, um, yeah, just in terms of going deep, I mean, for you, you know, you got a Tommy John surgery back in 2015. We'll get back into that in a little bit. But, you know, now you're going six innings. You threw 88 pitches this last outing, 96 pitches before the one before that. Uh, it seems like they're kind of relaxing you into the season and letting you go deeper and deeper. Um, what is it like just to go deep again and, and know that, you know, the, the team trusts your arm, trusts your stuff to go that deep again? I mean, it feels great. Uh, I missed it. I missed being a starting pitcher. Uh, I felt like the last two years have been, you know, for better or worse, I've been kind of a showcase guy. It's, you know, walk out there, throw 30 pitches as hard as you can and walk off. And uh, that's not what that's not what I've taken pride in being uh, my entire career. I think that, you know, I went to college. I went to Stanford because I wanted to win baseball games. And it's kind of exciting being back to doing that now. Um, obviously, I'm still on a little bit of a pitch count, but we're getting closer and closer to being a full start every game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned being a showcase pitcher. The reason why we wanted to bring you on this week was, you know, because of your draft experience last year. Uh, I mentioned the Tommy John surgery back in 2015 that knocked you out uh, for last season, your junior season at Stanford. Um, you know, just going back to the surgery. I mean, what was it like having that surgery at that point in your college career, um, coming off a pretty good season, you know, fr- freshman season with the Cardinal. Uh, yeah, and then getting knocked out like that, especially trying to prepare for the draft. I mean, take us through that entire process. Yeah, I mean, the, the surgery is tough. It's I don't wish that on my on my worst enemy. And it happened at kind of a bad time. I felt like I was finally starting to hit my stride and 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 become you know hopefully the pitcher I want to be. Uh, but it's part of baseball, and uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it back in time for the draft. So I was forced to you know throw the bullpens for scouts and. And, you know, do what we call the showcase thing, kind of like what a lot of the high school guys are doing right now. And, and it's tough. The draft is a stressful time. I mean, it's a really exciting time. And, you know, I can't wait to see a bunch of my buddies go again this year. And, you know, I look forward to, you know, meeting the guys that we're going to take. But, but it's also stressful, you know. You've been working for, for the high school guys. Maybe it's two or three years for the college guys. It could be four or five, six years. Um, and, you know, it all comes down to kind of one day and, it's you know it's it's easy to lose perspective of how important that of that day is right you know it's just one day he, I got buddies on my team now who weren't even drafted and there's a good chance they're going to play in the big leagues but uh, for me it was a it was a kind of an interesting process I'm not sure a lot of guys in the draft this year will do what I what I had to do but um, it was exciting nonetheless and and I think it's been honestly it's been more exciting since the draft getting back to what you were saying you know going deep into ball games being the pitcher that I want to be and getting back to what you know why they drafted me, like based on what I did freshman year. So, you know, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, and, and you mentioned being a kind of showcase pitcher. You you had side sessions in front of scouts. Um, you know, w- how did that kind of come about? Was that something, uh, you know, did you have an advisor who set those up? Was that those through Stanford? I mean, how did those kind of come about that you al- allowed you to not necessarily pitch on a mound for in the NCAA, but at least get some work in, in front of scouts like that? Yeah, so I mean that's pretty common amongst all pitchers. Uh, even a guy who's pitching in games is gonna scouts are gonna be at every game. They're gonna be at bullpens if they can be. For me, the only difference was I wasn't pitching in games, so they had to know you know when my pens were gonna be. And my coaches here were pretty uh, uh, pretty good about it. Pretty you know they made the bullpen available. They made themselves available. They you know anything I needed, they did what was you know necessary for me to have have the stuff I needed. So you know big thanks to them and. Uh, you know, in the end, the way it really works out is the teams that like you, they get old you and they say, hey, we haven't seen you bitch in 16 months. We'd like to see you throw <laughs> baseball before we go ahead drafting you. <laughs> so, and, you know, and we and we made it happen. And, and mine was maybe a little bit more unique in the sense that we had a little more control over who was seeing me pitch. But in the end, I was 
you know, kind of just like all the rest of the guys, you know, what team wants me the most, let's throw for them. Yeah, so at what point did the Padres kind of become part of the conversation? How how much did you know that they were going to be a possibility, you know, at eighth overall uh, going into draft day last year? Or were you kind of in the woods about, like you said, you got you got to know who was showing up every day. You were kind of aware of that. But, um, you know, how much were the Padres in the picture going into draft day? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, maybe, you know, kind of the winter break is when you, you start kind of figuring out, for me anyways, you know, in the December, January, February is when I started figuring out what teams, you know, would might be interested. It was kind of unique in the sense that the Padres were the first team that reached out. I don't think it always works out like that. A lot of guys see kind of, you know, the dips and the whatever, some teams on you and then it's off you. And a lot of it depends on how you're pitching. For me, it was kind of weird because I wasn't pitching. So if a team liked me, they liked me and it was unlikely that they were going to change that opinion. Um, so the Padres were in early. Uh, obviously, there was, you know, lots of other teams, but I thought it was a great fit. Uh, they saw me. Um, there's, you know, there's, <laughs> you can't do a pre-draft deal. There's no such thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did have a good feeling about the Padres, whether it was going to be at 8, you know, 24, 25. I felt like that was a team that I had a really good shot of going to. Um, so, yeah, I think that was, you know, honestly, that was probably – February or March, I started having a good feeling about about uh, San Diego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when, and when you are in those side sessions, um, you know, I remember talking to you. You said it's just going through a normal activity, you know, what you would do in a normal bullpen. Um, but how much is it in your mind that this is essentially as close as I get to a major league tryout right now? Yeah, I think uh, let's just put it this way: I don't throw my bullpens now like I threw those bullpens pre-draft. <laughs> uh, it probably you just you couldn't. You couldn't throw them like I was throwing them. Um, I was doing my best to, to emulate what, what a game would be because I didn't have the opportunity to pitch in games. Um, and I think that, you know, it's something I've learned this year especially is you can't throw every bullpen at 100%. That's not the point of a bullpen. Um, you'll wear down over the course of a 140, 160-game season, hopefully, right? So um, those ones were a little different. I was walking out there, and I was trying to show them you know, all three or four pitches to, you know, 100% capability. Uh, now I think I use my pens more to work on things that need to be worked on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it was exciting. If it was That was the closest I got to feel to, like a, like you said, a major league tryout. Mm-hmm. Walk out there and there might be 10, there might be two guys, but I got to pretty much be as good as I possibly can be with no none of that, like, in-game pressure. But, uh, you know, that maybe it kind of provided its own pressure to the fact that there was a bunch of guys standing there watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you not only – was this a unique draft experience in terms of going through the injury and working back, but you had gone through the draft process before you were taken by the Yankees in the 26th round of the 2013 draft. Um, you know, your your father had gone through the draft twice. He was taken in the 26th round and then in the sixth round. Um, you know, what is it like when you have that wealth of knowledge to kind of tap into both personally and with your dad, Paul, um, to, to know what to expect on draft day? Yeah, well, first of all, I like to hold that over him. We both went 26th <laughs> round at high school, but, uh, you know, I guess I had a little better of a college career, my, you know, my one-year career. Yeah, there you go. But, Take uh, that for whatever it's No, worth. I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, he had 13 years in the big, so I guess I got still a little work to do. But, um, no, I mean, obviously having him is, was a huge help. I think that without, without him, my injury could have been a, a much bigger factor uh, in, in the draft. And I'm not saying that because, you know, oh, he has the pedigree. I'm sure that helps too. But I'm talking about the wealth of knowledge he provided going into the draft, reminding me that it was just one day, you know, reminding me that 
well, we want you to go to the team that wants you the most, not the team that's going to pick you the highest. Like we want to put you in a place where you have the best chance to fish in the big leagues. I mean, he's, he was there and he did it and, and he's still involved in, with the Blue Jays. So I felt like, you know, regardless of what happened, I had pretty good advice. Um, and I mean, there's just, there's nothing that, there's nothing as helpful as someone who's done it before and, you know, actually can, you know, empathize with what you're going through. So um, it was huge for me. Yeah, and, and you signed pretty quick. I think the official date that the signing was announced was June 20th, um, just a couple weeks afterwards. Um, you know, with the the bonus pools and everything like that and the recommended slot values, the, the game has kind of changed in terms of negotiating bonuses and all that kind of stuff. But what was that process like just quickly two weeks before you were in pro ball um, between getting drafted and getting right in? Yeah, um, for me, there was kind of there was a number that I wanted to reach. Uh, if they reached that number, I was signing. Uh, I made it pretty simple. Uh, it wasn't something that I wanted to fuss too much over. I was excited to be a pro baseball player. I was excited to be part of the San Diego Padres, and I wanted to get there and do it. Um, I wasn't going to, you know, wait it out and try and, and make an extra, you know, 0.05%. For me, it was more important to get there and, and start getting back to, you know, getting back to being a baseball player. Um, that being said, it is, it's a weird system. It's, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if it's, uh, the best system for, for us players, but it's the way it works and the guys kind of got to accept it. And, and, you know, I mean, it's tough. Like you, you might not get drafted by the team you think you're going to get drafted by and they might lowball you. They might give you more than you thought. You really have no clue until, until it happens. So, um, it's definitely, it can be a hectic week, two weeks after the draft as you, as you try and figure out, you know, how it's all going to work out mm -hmm. when did you feel like it, it was working out was it just when they hit that number or was it um you know immediately like you put in a call with the Padres or you know your representatives all that kind of stuff I mean when did it feel like things were going to click in you know I pretty much knew uh right before they drafted me they called me you know uh, is this going to work yep that's going to work and so for me it was it was good it was you know I'd say it was within 24 hours of the draft we had worked out exactly what it was going to be um, and, and I was happy with it, and I think that they were happy with where we got to. So yeah, it was a win-win, which is what I you know, would encourage everyone to look for. Um, there is a way to negotiate where both parties win, and I think that we were able to do that, and I was proud of that. And, and then it was, let's put this behind us, sign it, and, and move on, because money is obviously an exciting part of the game and an exciting part of the draft, and you're going to have some 18-year-old kid who might make $7 million in a couple of weeks, and that's crazy. That's awesome. Good for him. Um, but, you know, baseball is what we came here to play and I think that there's a lot of guys who would tell you that they'd sign for nothing if they could just play baseball so uh, for me it was great to get that out of the way and and obviously I was excited about how it turned out but uh, I was maybe even more excited about you know what comes after it yeah so let's finish up with baseball um, you know you mentioned now your your bullpens are different than what they were like a year ago um, when you're working on your game now when you're trying to fine-tune certain pitches I mean what are you kind of focusing on I know you talked about kind of approach before um, and not trying to do too much, but in terms of what you know, what's in your mix, what pitches you're working on, what what is that kind of uh, gone, you know, or where is that gone the fir the first two months, and what are you still tinkering with? Yeah, so I, I mean, I talked about my game plan preseason. Um, I wanted to work on the breaking balls, and I wanted to work on fastball command, and and that's still the goal. I mean, I think the games that I've got beat up a little bit have been the games where I did not execute those three things or those two things, and. Uh, you know, in the games I've done well, it's the times I've been able to focus and, and, and do those things. Um, the slider and the curveball, I think, are getting better and better every day. 
Glendon Rush, my, my pitching coach, I think has made a huge difference in my curveball and it's, you know, effectiveness in, in certain counts and against certain players and getting a sense of when I need to throw it and when guys are jumping at my fastball and, you know, or when they're covering and, and, and kind of, you know, learning how to pitch again. Like it's been a long time. It's, it's, you know, and it's been a long time since I pitched against this many good players. So, uh, my goals are still the same fastball command and, and, you know, working on the breaking balls, but I think it's getting closer and closer every day. And obviously there's times where you wish you could do a little bit better, but, uh, you know, all in all, I think it's been pretty successful so far. Yeah, just to bring up that that curveball, like you said, it, it, you feel like it's getting better. What about it? Are you doing a different grip, or are you, you tight? Like, what specifically have you changed about it to make it a, a little bit more effective? Yeah, I think. I mean, most of it's probably just throwing it more. Um, but I do think that uh, I made a small grip change. Uh, Rushy, uh, you know, advised like a thumb position on the ball, which which helped make a difference. I'm throwing the pitch, uh, throwing it with confidence that they're not going to hit it hard. Um, throwing it not just as a, you know, Ooh, I'm going to drop one in there. Time, but also, with, you know, like we talked about, throwing it in bullpens and, and throwing it with intention and throwing it with, you know, an idea in mind of how you want it to look, like the shape of the pitch. And I think that for me, it's starting to tighten up. It's starting to get, you know, a, a faster rotation, a, a, maybe a smaller smaller movement but tighter and, and closer to the plate and, and that's all stuff that we're looking for all right great well th- that was uh number two Padres prospect Cal Quantrill has got a 3.54 ERA with 56 strikeouts 53 and a third innings with class a advanced uh Lake Elsinore thanks so much Cal for joining us uh th- thanks for taking the time and good luck the rest of the way over there yep thanks I appreciate it Again, you can find Cal Quantrill on Twitter. He is at Cal underscore Quantrill 47, one of the friendliest Canadians in all of minor league baseball. Although they all are. They're all friendly Canadians. There's no there's no one that isn't of the Canadians that we all know and love. And uh, with that, we'll bring in a non-Canadian, Benjamin Hill, who's friendly. Hi, Ben. Hey, Tyler. Um, please don't introduce me after doing some <laughs> ethnic stereotyping. I, I don't appreciate it. <laughs> Canadian isn't an ethnicity. It's just a nationality, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a. It's Although a I guess really thing. all, and that is, is, they all started as nationalities, kind of something. Just, just don't like where you're from. Just don't stereotype as, as like one group as being friendly and then saying Ben is not part of that group. Yeah, well, exactly. true. I want to be stereotyped all the positive stereotypes. I pointed out that he's friendly. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's a sliding scale of friendliness when it comes to when it comes to <laughs> covering difficult things in the world of in the world of baseball which we task Ben with weekly but it's been uh this week as uh we're we're off of the high of the cards being released but the thing that I think is really cool is I've seen all these other people who have cards in the tops card set of which Ben is featured and they've all started tweeting them out there the the crazy hot dog vendor in Reading and the peanut guy Eric and Trice said it's very cool like it's it's all spreading now we got to talk to you that was like the genesis of it now it's blowing up across the world of baseball I'm very excited about it yeah, I don't know if blowing up is the word, but, you know, I'll take it. I'll, among I'll take it. among it is, nerds it like us, up. we should say. It, it is blowing up among among nerds like us. And uh, <laughs> keep going to the blog. Um, as I said, revealing every single card uh, in the 15-card set. Got a post on South Bend's synagogue-turned-team store coming up. 
uh, posts on the Modesto, uh, Modesto Nuts trio of nuts mascot. They have their own card. Um, Paul the Churros Man in San Jose, he has his own card. I'll be writing about that soon, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And please get in touch if you have any questions about the cards or, of course, if you want uh, me to sign a card. I got my first self-addressed stamped envelope sent yeah. to me this Did week. Did you really? And- and it's a career milestone. So that thank, thank you all. Or in this case, thank you to that one person. But <laughs> That is fantastic. I, I'm going to have to do that now I'm, just to get in on the SASE fun of mailing somebody yeah, that there, I work there, with. There's no fun here. like SASE fun. <laughs> well, it's the fun is, that always uh, makes its way back to you. It's a gift that keeps on giving. Um, well, it's a, it's a very good transition that we have into this week's promo watch. We just talked to a member of the Lake Elsinore Storm, and the Lake Elsinore Storm kicked things off in this week's promo watch. Uh, Geek End, the fourth annual Geek End for the Lake Elsinore Storm, which features um, sci-fi and superhero tributes and a whole bunch of other stuff. It's like Comic-Con and minor league baseball and, and a whole bunch of fun. Tell us about Geek End and Lake Elsinore. Yeah, well, first of all, I love the Lake Elsinore Storm, but, you know, I just visited there earlier this month. I've had plenty of blog posts on the Lake Elsinore Storm. I've had several articles on the Lake Elsinore Storm. I'm really not trying to write more about the Lake Elsinore (laughs) Storm, but in putting together this week's promo watch, I got to kind of call out minor league baseball. There weren't too many, like, real standalone, awesome, meaty promos to write about. So I was like, all right, I'm going to dip back into this Lake Elsinore Storm well and write about Geek End, which they originated in 2014. This is Geek End 4. So a few other teams have picked up on it. But it's basically taking what have been staples of the minor league promo calendar, you know, Star Wars, superheroes, video games, cosplay, not so much. Uh, but anyway, there's four nights, Thursday through Sunday, dedicated to each of those things uh, in order, cosplay, superheroes, Star Wars, and video games. And there's uh, various promotions built around each theme. And obviously, if you're into cosplay, superheroes, video games, and or Star Wars, there's overlap. So the team's really trying to uh, push the weekend out there to geeks and nerds and people who are into sci-fi culture and have them come to uh, as many games as they can. And for every single one of these promotions... Um, you if you dress up according to the night's theme you get in free but in every single case the team states that t-shirts are not dressing up so uh plan accordingly and if you think a t-shirt is dressing up for a minor league theme night you are mistaken you're not getting free tickets and you didn't try very hard in other words don't go to hot topic thinking you can just go costume shopping i guess right now tyler there's your segue speaking of hot topics <laughs> well done that was very nice of that. I feel like I have to let Sam take it, speaking of hot topics. <laughs> he brought it up. Well, no, I, I just w- kind of was interested to, to ask, like, why did the Lake Elsinore storm start this? Because, you know, Ben and I talked about this yesterday, and I found out it wasn't the case. I thought there was a tie-in with Comic-Con or something like that, this being a SoCal team, Comic-Con's in San Diego, or even a Padres affiliate. doesn't sound like that's the case, but... Um, you know, where did this kind of start from? Was it just packing as much promos into one weekend as possible? And is there kind of a ripple effect? We see other teams doing their own kind of geek end. This is the fourth one. So, um, you know, does this have the effect of like the food uh, promos that we talked about in the past? Or is this kind of like a one off in one destination? Uh, well, absolutely. I've seen it uh, occur on other promo calendars. Uh, for some reason, the Myrtle Beach Pelicans come to mind with theirs, but I know I've seen it in at least a half a dozen cases, probably more. In terms of why Lake Elsinore, it's like the answer to so many minor league questions. Why not Lake Elsinore? Why not anywhere? It's just someone having an idea. And uh, in this case, uh, the Storm's uh, assistant GM, Mark Mark Beskid, is just uh, really into the idea, has really spearheaded it. And I think once he got going with the initial concept, uh, you know, he's been a driving force and making it a thing for the storm and making it catch on along around minor league baseball and, uh, you know, uh, trying to make it bigger and better every year. You know, it's the minor league way. 
Um, in Durham, this is really cool. Last year, we talked about this, uh, a local clothing company in Durham. Durham has partnered with um, a handful of local designers and apparel manufacturers and that kind of stuff. The Bulls this year um, have announced a partnership with Runaway Clothes, unveiling their uniforms for Durham Night, D-U-R-M Night. They'll wear Durham hats and Durham jerseys. The jerseys have uh, the skyline across them. They are black jerseys with a kind of a blue, light blue fl- fading into dark blue skyline. They're really cool. And that I that's one of my favorite promotions that we've talked about over the last couple of years is kind of this this cultivation of relationships with local artists and local design teams um, and local manufacturers. Durham's done a really cool job with this. They have. And Tyler, you just basically said just about everything I know about that specific promotion. But on that general concept, um, the Bulls uh, just a couple days ago this past weekend um, did a recurring promotion that has the same basic concept of partnering with a local business that I always think should catch on elsewhere and hasn't yet. But Merge Records, a pretty well respected, well renowned uh, independent record label, is based uh, in that in the Durham area. And there was Merge Records night every year with at the Durham Bulls game where they the players have uh, Merge Record artists play uh, as their walk up music. This year, Josh Cantor, Cantor who was the uh, Boston Red Sox um, organist and also kind of a hip indie rock cat, he plays uh, keyboards in the Baseball Project, one of my favorite bands. Uh, he was on hand at Merge night playing Merge Records uh, requests on the organ throughout the night, and you know Merge artists uh, at the ballpark and. Um, so I think that's a really cool thing as well. And I'm always kind of looking up my favorite record labels and being like, why aren't teams partnering with them and having you know the bands play at the ballpark or give away some seven-inch records or at least play their records over the PA? I know it's maybe easier said than done, but if you want a template for it, Merge Records and uh, Merge Night, or Merge Records and Durham Bulls is a great one. And uh, Josh, the organist for the Red Sox, who was at um, the Durham Bulls promotion was soliciting requests. And because of my requests, uh, Eleanor Friedberger's Walking on the Sun was played uh, at the ballpark. And uh, I really appreciated that. It's a very good song. So that's all I got on that. Just to kind of look back now, that, that was looking forward to the week ahead. But as you got to get further away from your California trip, um, you know, more stories start to emerge that you haven't told on the blog yet or on the site. Um, one of them that I really liked was this story of the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes uh, mascot who has been there, Tremor, who looks like a dinosaur. Um, Is a dinosaur. Is a dinosaur, excuse me. He is very much a dinosaur. He is not dinosaur-esque, he is a dinosaur. Uh, And how he's been there for 20 years all all with the same person uh, inside the suit. Um, What can you kind of tell us about Tremor and, you know, what's gone on there for the last 20-something years? Well, this is one of my favorite stories to write, and it's gotten a huge response, uh, particularly on Facebook. But Aaron Bishop, a local high school teacher in Rancho Cucamonga, has been for 20 years Tremor the Rallysaurus, the dinosaur mascot for the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes. So I talked to him when I was in Rancho Cucamonga a few weeks ago about his origin story as a mascot, about how his life evolved with mascotting always as a constant through marriage and kids. And, um, you know, he's been doing it for 20 years. He's in his 40s. Uh, he's a family man, he's a teacher, and yet he still gets in this mascot suit every day. And I think one of the reasons the story did so well on Facebook is that he's a really popular guy in Rancho Cucamonga among uh, the Quakes, but just in the community at large. And there were so many Facebook shares and likes and posts that said something to the effect of like, Mr. Bishop, I can't believe that's Mr. Bishop who has been uh, Tremor the Dinosaur all these years. And if you think about it, going back to high school, what if you found out uh, that your uh, – 
one of your favorite teachers was the, the mascot at a local minor league game all these years. It would kind of blow your mind. So I think that story blew some minds. And I got a text from Aaron this week saying like, dude, I didn't know that story would be so widely read. Like I'm a celebrity now. And I think I gave away a secret a little bit. So everyone knows, well, Hey, he's the one who talked to me, your fault, Aaron, but it was a it was great talking to him. Super nice guy. And, uh, you know, go to the website and read it or Google it. Aaron Bishop, Tremor the Rally Source, about his two-decade journey as a teacher, family man, and, of course, Tremor the Rally Source at Rancho Cucamonga Quakes game. Very good story by me, if I do say so myself. <laughs> I just uh, like that he called himself the Iron Horse of Mascot at the end. <laughs> yeah, I think he said that in a more world-weary, like, oh, man, like, how long <laughs> am I doing this? Is there an Iron Horse? I don't know. Are you going to give me something? He was fun to talk to. I talked to him in the in the dressing room, and uh, yeah, he was beat up. I mean, he's in good shape for a guy his age, but you know, I certainly couldn't make it through even half an inning as a mascot, and I'm younger than him. And uh, you know, credit to him for staying in shape, and uh, you know, for the love of the game, as much as a cliche as it is, uh, you gotta love it to do um, to be a mascot for 20 years. And the impact he's had as Tremor and within the community was is huge. And to see that. The community respond in such a way to story, and and the local community community has never happened in all my writing, uh, in terms of the intensity and love and respect that the story got because it was about someone who was so loved and respected. So pretty cool to see. That's an exhausting job, but it is a really cool story. You should go check it out on the site. Uh, ben, you talked a little bit about some of the cards that are uh, already out and coming up. The Modesto Nuts um, in in South Bend, the synagogue turned team store. Um, you had a, a cool visit in Jack. Jacksonville last year that has also spawned a card. Give us uh, an update on these. Yeah, I mean, I just keep uh, cranking them out one by one so everyone can see, even if they have not uh, tried to purchase the cards themselves, uh, everyone who's getting a card in my insert set in the in the Tops Pro debut um, set. And, uh, yeah, Peter Pedro Bregan, uh, during his last year with the Suns, his last dance, you know, he owned the team. His father had owned the team before then. Uh, four of his uncles played professional baseball. So a real baseball guy. And, and Pedro has a uh, Tops card. Uh, of him in his in his very cluttered office stuffed with memorabilia during his last season that last dance of 2015 and uh so yeah i'm just happy to to write about all these different cards and uh, happy to share them with people uh as i said i got my first self-addressed stamped envelope and uh, i know that a few of these guys who are featured on the card some of these fans and vendors and mascots are you know starting to be asked to sign the card themselves at ball games and i just think that's uh, really cool and Per usual, my job is to shine a spotlight on the uh, undersung heroes of minor league baseball and the weirdos and uh, and uh, the people behind the scenes who keep things running. And uh, I really love this opportunity to have done just that. He's the best in the business. Benjamin Hill is on Twitter at Ben's Biz. Um, one last promo I wanted to plug. It's not often that you get to see road teams wearing a throwback, but the uh, the Salt Lake Bees, if you're going to be in Salt Lake on Friday the 9th, the Salt Lake Bees will turn into the Salt Lake Gulls, and they'll be playing host of the Albuquerque Dukes. Uh, knee isotopes and um, I think that's super cool so uh, you can check out that promo as well I wanted to make sure to give that one a plug thanks Ben it's good stuff it was great stuff thanks Tyler thanks Sam we're doing something a little different this week um, before we get into our final segment um, where Tyler and I will tell you all about what to look for this week on MILB.TV. Um, we just kind of wanted to talk about one topic real fast um, while it was kind of on our minds this week uh, in minor league baseball. 
the Ogden Raptors, as, as some of you know, um, came out with a promotion that has since been canceled, deleted, um, with full explanation. We'll get to that in a second. But it was called Hourglass Appreciation Night. Um, this spread across the Internet in, in the worst way possible. Um, it, it basically was a promotion that would have involved women coming in and being uh, color commentators during the game, but they were going to be models. They were going to kind of be ogled at. Um, it was an appreciation of hourglass-shaped color commentators. Uh, there was going to be a video stream. It was basically uh, you know, offensive on, on many levels. And uh, instead of Tyler and I talking about this, um, you know, we wanted to bring in the perspective of somebody um, you know, who who you've heard on the podcast before, but um, would would do a much better job of talking about this than we possibly could uh, in our friend and co-worker. I think Tyler's called her before, or the best friend of the podcast, Kelsey Hennigan. Kelsey, hello. Hey, Sam. How's it going? Good, good. I'm sorry we were talking about this in this way, but um, before we kind of get into things real fast, we don't want to talk about this too much. We don't, it, like we said, the, the issue is over. Um, the Ogden Raptors put out a statement, Raptors president Dave Baggett, um, saying that it was an unauthorized press release that was disseminated over the weekend, announcing a promotion that was not approved or scheduled by club ownership. The promotion will not take place, and steps have been put in place to ensure that this will not happen again. Uh, the Raptors offered an apology to anybody who was offended and said it does not condone the object, object, uh, excuse me, objectification of women. Um, so all the right steps have ha- happened since. It's, it's a fire that's been put out, but it was a fire, and it was an opportunity for us to talk about um, kind of women in baseball and, and what exactly, where exactly we stand on that issue in the game right now. Um, so, Kelsey, I kind of want to get things started with just what were your thoughts when you first heard about this, when this was first, um, you know, going around the Internet? Um, I saw the critiques first before I even saw what it was. I just saw people being very upset about it. So I was like, what is this? So I clicked on it. And, of course, the first thing you see is that picture, which is uh, a cartoon in bikinis. is never uh, necessarily something you expect to see on a minor league baseball site. But um, so that was weird to start with. And then the more you read it, the more you see all these terms that aren't preferred for describing humans in general, uh, like thoroughbreds and things like that. Um, so, I mean, at first I was just like, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. It's whatever. And then, like, the more I read it, I was like, this is probably really sexist and this shouldn't be said at all. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, this also shouldn't be said by a minor league team. Because um, at the time, we it felt like the whole team was promoting this. And the more the layers, the more you read it, the more it just got worse and worse. Right. And we just want to kind of go back to the fact that um, you know, it's, it seems like it was a rogue employee. Um, it's since been dealt with. It's, it's not going to officially happen. Um, so we don't want to harp too much on, uh, you know, what Ogden did wrong here. They, they tried to clean up the mess the best they can. But since this is an opportunity, um, you know, where do you think the sport of baseball or just sports in general kind of has room to grow? Uh, and what kind of ideas would you have for for kind of taking that room to grow in terms of when it deals with and issues of gender or sex or anything like that in terms of, you know, working with fans, working with people involved in the game who, who are women and trying to be a more inclusive uh, umbrella for that to fall under. Well, this is a little different than the things we've seen previously, the uh, promotions that people felt were sexist in the past, where, whether it be manicures or baseball one-on-one lessons at games, because those were at least 
trying to tailor towards women. This is just towards men, and which is obviously another problem. I mean, there's definitely room to grow. I mean, players always talk about how every day you can get better, and obviously it's no different from the front end office or from our end. You know, there's so many ways to get better. And while I don't think that this is something that uh, really speaks to the team or anything like that, I think that obviously there's still room for many teams to grow and to have more diversity of voices in the office. So I think we were talking about this a little bit yesterday. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to have a certain amount of women in the office or a certain amount of minorities in the office to get the diversity of minds. You just need to have people who think differently, and maybe that just means interviewing differently or having more of a litmus test on your interview test. But, I mean, for the viewers of the show, Sam and I argue about things all the time in the office, and usually it's not things that you would expect my view to be or you or someone would stereotypically expect his view to be. Uh, and it's things like that. You just need people to have different minds and to have different views to say, hey, maybe this isn't a good idea uh, or maybe we should think this way or maybe it's a good idea to ask the fans what things they would like. Yeah, and I, th- I think that brings up an important point just about generally what we think about in, in terms of minor league baseball is that it is such a diverse group. I mean, it is such a big area. You know, we, we talk about teams in Florida. We talk about teams in Utah, we talk about teams in Michigan, we talk about teams in Maine, we talk about teams in Southern California, all over the country. Um, it is such a diverse thing. So to see things kind of lose that diversity and that kind of perspective can get upsetting. And it, um, but I, I, I think, you know, we're kind of working towards that way. Maybe, you know, the fact that this is not actually existing is a positive step in that way. Um, but Kelsey, uh, if you wanted kind of a lasting message, you know, this was a mistake. It was taken care of quickly. Again, I can't stress that enough, but um, if there was to kind of be a lasting message of this that the industry as a whole could kind of take away from it, what do you what do you want it to be and what do you think it should be? Um, I don't know if it's just the optimist in me, but my biggest impression of this is how quickly it was, you know, disavowed, like how quickly everyone saw like hey this is wrong why is this happening how quickly uh the organization said this wasn't a real thing um i just think that the response has been great and the fact that you know yes one or two people said something really chauvinistic or awful and either thought it was funny or thought it was a good idea whatever the case may be it appears that everyone else did not think that way and everyone else thought that it was wrong and awful and I guess that's my lasting message is that hey yeah there are still some bad eggs or whatever you want to call that but the response and everyone in general has seemed to be having this positive vibe and this uh, more progressive vibe and um, yeah so I I think we'll probably just leave it on on that note Um, you know it's unfortunate we had to bring you on and talk about it this way Kelsey but um thank you for for sharing your thoughts we'll we'll definitely have you back on soon um to talk about strictly baseball things and uh yeah thanks so much for for taking the time today yeah I'm ready to talk about baseball and silly promotions that are fun (laughs) but thanks again Sam Wrapping up this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. Hey, 
Uh, if you have yet to check out Milb TV this season, now is the time to do it. Uh, with yearly subscriptions, the price is now $39.99, dropped down from $49.99 for MILB.TV. And that is not all. If you use the promo code MILB2017, podcast listeners, you can get an extra $10 off. Uh, so again, go to MILB.TV, get your subscription. Was $49.99, now $39.99. And with the promo code MILB2017, you can get an additional $10 off. And... Check out all the best and brightest on MILB.TV for the remainder of the 2017. It's not even the remainder because short season teams have yet to get started. So really, you're just getting in on the ground floor for the start of all of minor league baseball, which will be coming up here in a couple of weeks when the short season leagues get started. And with that, we'll preview some matchups on Milb TV this week. Um, I'm going to the Texas League on Friday, in which one of the top prospects in the Texas Rangers organization, Yolander Mendez, will be taking the hill against a former Texas Rangers prospect in Akeem Bostic when the Frisco Rough Riders visit the Corpus is Christy Hooks. Uh, Yonder Mendez has been very good this season. He won Texas League Player of the Week honors, Pitcher of the Week honors last week, uh, and so far the 22-year-old this season, 3-3 three and three record, a 3.52 ERA, and 11 starts. Akeem Bostic, who was a second-round pick of the Rangers back in 2013, started his season with Class A advanced yeah. Bowie's Creek in the Carolina League, 2-1 and one with a 1.86 ERA through four outings there. He's since been bumped up to AA Corpus Christi, a 3.72 ERA and a 3-1 and one record through five outings. So former Rangers prospect going against the Rangers affiliate in the Texas League. That's coming up on Friday from 8.05 Eastern Time, 7.05 Central Time in Corpus Christi when the Frisco Rough Riders travel to take on the Corpus Christi hook. Sam, what do you got? Um, so for me, this is a little bit of projection on my part. So you should probably watch the game anyways. It's it's this Sunday. Uh, the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders are traveling to Lehigh Valley for a game at 135 Eastern. Uh, the reason I picked that game, they, they do have a weekend series. So, you know, that, those are two talented lineups to begin with. You're going to see Gliber Torres. You're going to see uh, Clint Frazier. Uh, you're going to see Dustin Fowler. You're going to see J.P. Crawford, Dylan Cousins, Reese Hoskins, Nick Williams, on down the line. Those lineups are really good. The reason why I say Sunday is because looking at the way the Rail Riders rotation is lining up right now, it uh, looks like Chance Adams is going to get the, pit, the chance to pitch on Sunday. Uh, he just pitched on Tuesday, so that kind of makes sense, uh, barring rainouts and all that. But uh, he's posting a 1.55 ERA this year between AA Trenton and Scranton Wilkes-Barre, uh, 66 strikeouts and 64 innings, holding opposing batters to a 168 average he's kind of a guy who keeps churning out results everywhere he's gone that's what's turned him into a top 100 prospect uh he's going to go up against a real difficult lineup if he does make that start on sunday against the iron pigs a great test for for both him and the iron pigs to see uh you know jp crawford starting to catch fire nick williams has had a really good couple of weeks so what happens when they go up against a top 100 name like chance adams that'll be a must watch milb tv so yeah um Subscribe if you haven't done the chance yet. Use the uh, code that Tyler mentioned, and uh, you'll have access for the rest of the year just in time for short season. A lot of the guys we talked about in the first segment uh, in terms of draft picks will be making their way to short season ball this year. Uh, that'll be your first chance to get to see them make their pro debuts. So never a better time to get in than uh, right now. So do it. MILB2017 is the promo code. You can subscribe, $49.99 at the start of the season, $39.99, the reduced price, and now you can get an additional $10 off your MILB.TV subscription for the rest of the 2017 campaign. And with that, we'll wrap things up on this week's edition of the show before the show. Uh, coming back at you next week, we'll uh, get a chance to review the Major League Baseball first-year player draft in 2017 and uh, talk about where guys are likely headed for those who uh, have already signed, which, as we know, over the last – 
several years has become a much more common occurrence that we get early picks signed quickly and into pro ball at the start of short season ball. And that's really cool. We'll get a chance to review the draft and preview the start of the 2017 season for some of those guys and a whole lot more on next week's edition of the show before the show. For Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mond. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. We'll be right back.